Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody, and thank you for joining us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. How are you, Kim? I'm well, thanks, Mark. And a little uh, little chilly in my recording studio here today as we are in the depths of winter, but uh, otherwise doing great. And we're still remote recording the shows and not drinking wine together, but uh, we were just talking. We're drinking a lot of wine, just not together anymore. But, <laughs> you but can't we have... share your samples with me. I can't share my samples that's, with you. That's right. But we'll make up for it someday when we, we will. get back together. That's right. And, and uh, we're happy everyone's here uh, listening today. Uh, we love talking wine with you. And we uh, found an article today that was in uh, shape.com about healthy drinks and how to make mulled wine. And uh, Kim, I think it's funny they say in healthy drinks, mulled wine. Do you like mulled wine, Kim? It has kind of grown on me. It's not something that I make a lot of, but I was intrigued by this article because it didn't just talk about what we traditionally think of as mulled wine, where you have red wine, you have some spices and you put them together, you know, sort of like a wine version of a mulled cider kind of a drink. They go into all of these traditional hot, either wine-based or other type of alcoholic beverage-based warming cocktail-y things from a number of different cold climate countries. So I really thought that that was intriguing. And there are some things in here that really piqued my interest because as everybody knows, um, I'm not just about wine, about other things too. So I, I did feel like these aren't necessarily healthy alternative beverages for people because they are alcoholic. They do have a lot of added sugar to them, but kind of a fun, different take on a warming winter beverage. Yeah, and I thought it was when I saw in this article that healthy, I think it was going to be a different version or something, but it really wasn't a healthy version. It's just a different take on on the mulled wine yeah. scene. So, And more of a different cultural take. We've got Russian ones, we've got Canadian ones, we've got Scandinavian ones, French ones. And I, I really found that to be very intriguing. I've never had it or made it. I know that's going to surprise you. You've never had never mulled had wine. It. I just, something about the whole thing about warm spiced warm wine. wine, you know, and so I was thinking, you know, why am I so out of it on this, Kim? And I had had to review the history of like mulled wine. And most of the history is related to people who used it pretty much for health reasons was what I found. Did you review any history or? No. It? So it was more of like, um, like an equivalent, like a hot toddy. Yeah. Well, they started like way back with the Greeks and they used added spice to it just as more of a preservative for the wine, which we talked to our listeners in the past about how things were added to wine and other cultures, which you were talking about cultures and it, a lot of the background probably has to do with that. And then the Romans, obviously they, they did it, but most of the time it was just to keep warm mm -hmm. in the winter when they were always conquering everywhere and fighting everywhere. And then in the Middle Ages, they said it took off, not because of, uh, well, again, related to health, but be because no one wanted to drink the water. So they had to come up with something else, which you know we mentioned in the past. And then uh, most notable, they're saying it's really related to Victorian England and Charles Dickens and more mm. of a holiday mm -hmm. type beverage. So, 
Do you think it gets a mulled wine gets a bad rap thinking it's more holiday or should it be more of a winter? I think that is how at least our perception of mulled wines have um, have come to us in modern day America. We think of them more as like a holiday kind of spirit. It's like, um, you know, you wouldn't really think about drinking eggnog at any other time in the winter except for Christmas time. And I feel like mulled wines and those other type of beverages kind of fall into the same category of, oh, this is a holiday drink. You know, it's not necessarily something that just keeps you warm, but is really associated with festive events and getting together with other people. And certainly in Europe, there is this tradition of these mulled wine, warmed mulled wine beverages as part of your Christmas shopping experience, you know, with the Christmas market in Germany and Italy and France. So I think that there definitely is this association between mulled wine drinks and Christmas. And then once Christmas is over, do people even consider drinking them anymore? I mean, we, we've we got a few more months of winter, especially here in New England, uh, after the Christmas holiday is over. So I think that January, February would be a perfect time to continue drinking these these types of beverages. Have you always consumed it and made it at holiday time or have you just had it more in winter? No, more of a winter thing. Funny, yeah. the first time I ever had mulled wine was in college and my study group had just gotten back from Italy. So it was January and it was cold and we had a get together at our professor's house and she made a big pot of mulled wine. And I remember this was the first time I had ever had it. And I had just turned 21. So I was like super excited to try this thing. And I was like, oh, that's very different. <laughs> and you know, when you're a 21 year old kid and you, you know, you don't have very much experience drinking wine. I mean, we drank plenty of wine in Italy, but it wasn't the best stuff. You're experiencing these new things when it comes to beverages that you've never really had before. So this was a, a, a new experience. And I remember it all these years later. That was the first time that I had had warm red mold wine. So thank you, professor, for <laughs> exposing me to that. Every time I hear mold wine, I always think like I relate it to Christmas spice, you know, like cinnamon, nutmeg, mm -hmm. that type of thing. So Those I think that's warm why. spices. Yeah. 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 And it's yeah. more to me, you know, it's definitely more like a, it strikes holiday to me. But yeah. And so we even use the, the tasting term when we're talking about wines that have those particular smells. We even call them warm spices, the nutmeg and the cinnamon and the ginger and the clove, you know, it brings up this association of warmth, whether it's, you know, gingerbread and warm cookies or, you know, mulled wine or mulled cider for that, for that fact. So let's talk, Kim, everyone's now wants to make this mulled wine. What is the best wine to use? And should it always be a red wine? when you make in mulled wine. So it doesn't always have to be a red wine. Red wine is the traditional one, I think, because it really plays very nicely with those fruity spices. So just like, I like to kind of think of it as like a warm winter sangria. So the same rules that you would follow for sangria, you would follow for mulled wine. So you don't want anything overly oaky because especially once you warm it up, you're going to get a lot of those oaky flavors. And thankfully, once you are heating up the wine, you're going to evaporate some of the alcohol. So even if you use something that's a little bit boozier, you're not necessarily going to have as alcoholic of a beverage uh, as your end product because you are going to lose some of that alcohol. But you are also going to concentrate some of the flavors in that wine. So just like we say that we don't like to use a kind of mm, not great quality wine to cook with because you are going to reduce down the flavors of that wine as you're cooking with it, the same thing is going to happen if you mull wine. So you're going to intend 
intensify the flavors of the wine as you mull it uh, before you add some of those spices just because of evaporation and th- that a little bit of reduction that's going to be going in. So, so, as, far I think, as, so mm-hmm. as far as alcohol, before we move on uh, from that, you saying earlier how it's, you can relate to sangria recipe, but you probably wouldn't want to buy like a sangria wine because it's lower in alcohol. You probably want to get something a little higher alcohol, right? Because it's... Yeah. And, and those sangria wines already have flavor added to it. So I think it's better if you start with kind of a blank palette, red wine, something light, something fruity, but you know, not something that is like 5% alcohol because that is going to, you know, you're almost going to completely reduce that. So I wouldn't do something like a red Moscato or something like that. So just a dry, light, fruity red wine. Inexpensive Pinot Noirs would work great. Beaujolais would be fantastic. Even a Zinfandel, I think, would work really, really well as long as it doesn't have a lot of oak to it because those are heartier. They have good fruit and they do have a little bit more of that alcohol, which, like I said, is going to be reduced once you add some heat to it. So lower tannin or higher tannin wine? Lower tannin. Yeah. For any of these things, I tend to do lower tannin, whether it's cooking with or whether it's making cocktails. Save the good, you know, gutsy tannic reds for sipping with with a nice T-bone steak. I've seen recommendations for Zins, for Merlots, for Grenache. Grenache. Yeah, Grenache is always a really popular one. And I saw a really interesting recommendation using uh, Torriga Nacional from Portugal, and it made me think a port would probably work well with this. Do you think, Kim? I might add a port for maybe like a dose of flavor at the end, but I don't know that I would use it as my base wine. It's It's already so sweet yeah and, and the alcohol is so high in that i feel like you just get <laughs> like really <Okay>. hammered <laughs> okay well i'm going to come back to the alcohol you might just have, all right so you might just have to adapt your recipe if you were using port and cut down on the added sweetener because you already have so much sugar yeah. and if you have a recipe that asks you to add additional brandy like i know most sangria recipes have you add brandy to it if you're going to use a port the brandy is already baked in so you wouldn't have yeah. to add anything else so yeah if you are going to go for a port uh you would need to just adapt your recipe a little bit that's exactly what i was going to ask you because i've seen <laughs> where it said you know spike it with brandy like most of the time you can sangria people are in triple sector totally. and brandy yep. so it's just boozing it up but so with the mulled wine you recommend use only one base valve don't you don't want to add more alcohol no use i it. wouldn't yeah. No. So what ha- are you saying when you're heating this up, if it's higher alcohol, it's going to make it the flavor different? It's going to overpower maybe the spice? Do I you don't think? necessarily think it's going to be a flavor issue. I think what is going to happen is the same thing that happens when you heat up sake. And if you heat up alcoholic beverages, you are sometimes going to get that big hit of booze that kind of hits you in the nose when you smell it. So if you are using something that's a little bit more, I don't say, you know, lower because we don't want to go too low, but at some point you are going to smell that alcohol as you're evaporating it. So I think just kind of hitting a nice middle ground of not too alcoholic because then all you're going to smell and taste is the alcohol because those are the things that start evaporating from the concoction first because alcohol uh, evaporates at a lower boiling temperature than than water does. So I would kind of not want to go on the super duper boozy side of it just because all of those alcoholic things are going to start evaporating really soon and then all you're going to taste is the the booziness of it you're listening to the wonderful world of wine we're your hosts kim and mark 
You can find more information about Mark at his website, franklinlickers.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. And you can hear us every week on Wednesdays and Saturdays on WFPR 102.9 FM in Franklin, Massachusetts. Welcome back, everyone. We are having a great conversation about winter wine warmers. We're talking about mulled wines and how to make them and the particular types of wine and types of ingredients that you want to use in your mulled wine. So I think we've talked enough about what kind of red wine you want to use in your mulled wine. Mark, why don't you hit on a couple of the other ingredients that are uh, very necessary to make this warm winter wine drink? Well, next, I think we definitely have to talk about what the spices would be that you would want to put in here. And, and I, we've talked a little bit. We've we've hit on like cinnamon. I've seen nutmeg. I've seen clove. I've seen allspice. Has there anything you prefer, Kim? Those are really the big ones. I think sometimes people will put some ginger in there, you know, kind of make it a little bit of almost like a gingerbread kind of a flavor. But yeah, the cinnamon, absolutely. And you can use whole spices and let them sort of sit around in a um, either kind of free floating in your saucepan and then strain it out afterwards. Or, um, you know, sometimes they sell these little like tea bags that you can use or they're almost like little coffee filters and you can put all your spices in there and tie it up and then put it in your wine as it's uh, bubbling on the stove. But some people really like things even like black pepper. I know I've seen some recipes for either baked goods or these kind of wine-related things that not only use those sweet spices, but then also kick them up with some more spicy things. And I think that's where like the black pepper and the ginger would come into. So I think it depends on, on people's own individual palates, but definitely those sweeter, you know, anything you would find in an apple pie work great for mulled wine. Well, I think now, Kim, we have to talk about what how are we doing this? How are we making it? Right. How are we making this stuff? You said on the stove. You said (laughs) on the stove. I've seen you can make it in a crock pot. You can make it in a microwave. And it all really has to do with never bringing the wine to a boil is my understanding. Yeah. I think the crock pot is actually a really great tool for something like this, because if you're not boiling it too much, you know, you're not having all of that alcohol evaporate. You're keeping the, you know, you're keeping the wine kind of as it is and you're infusing it with these other flavors. So I think the main recipe, now that we've gotten down to a recipe here, is a bottle of wine, your, you know, wine of your choice. And we, we, we spoke before the break about a number of different things that you could use for making your mulled wine. A quarter cup of sweetener of your choice. Some people want to use sugar. Some people want to use brown sugar, maybe honey. Uh, maybe agave, you know, whatever your sugar preference is. One citrus fruit. So chop up slices of orange. Some people prefer lemon to orange. I would probably do lemon because I'm a fiend for lemon. And then two tablespoons of that mixed spices of your of your choice. Are you going to be adding any black pepper to your mulled wine, Mark? No. Because I, I probably will because I, <laughs> I yeah, like it a little, a little spicy. More spice. Yeah. Well, everything you described to me, is uh, it's a sangria. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's a warm sangria, except for the extra booze. You don't put the brandy in. And and you're heating it up. And you're heating it up. Yep. So use a crock pot or a low setting on your stove. Combine all the ingredients. You know, let it kind of at almost a low simmer for about 10 minutes just to make all of those flavors kind of meld together and then keep it warm on the stove. And it's going to make everything smell really wonderful. And it will, it's not going to go bad 
had, <laughs> I'm sure, one bottle of wine and you have, a, you know, four, four or five people and that, that stuff's going to go quickly. You mentioned about putting the spice and stuff in a, in a bag or like a tea bag type of thing. If you didn't do that and you just threw all the ingredients in the pot, heated it up, does it separate and, and do you have to filter it out or is it okay? You know, is it a weird texture because everything kind of breaks down or is it dissolve? It's not really a weird texture. If you're using ground spices, then you probably want to run everything through a strainer or a filter before you drink it because you don't necessarily want like all of that cinnamon and clove like ground stuff in there. But if you've got big chunks of whole spices, I would probably, you know, you could add them to the cup and just make sure that, you know, tell people, oh, we've got whole spices in here. You know, please don't drink that allspice berry. Or again, you could strain it. And so then you wouldn't have um, those big pieces of spices in there, but it's not going to break up, I think is the question that you're asking. Like I know when I've made mulled cider, sometimes after you bring your cider to a boil, you have like a little bit of the cider itself kind of starts to separate. You know, you've got some solids at the bottom and you've got more of the liquids at the top. Wine's not going to do that. So as long as you've dissolved the sugar in there, which won't be a problem if you've heated it up. I think the only kind of parts that might be a little uncomfortable in a in a cup would be the spices. So yeah, I would suggest straining those out and then maybe garnishing with an orange slice and a nice piece of cinnamon stick so that people don't have to worry about getting berries and weird things in their glass. And then that would make a a really lovely presentation as well. If you had just orange and cinnamon, as those are some of the, if those are some of the flavors that you have in your mulled wine, and then it's a, you know, it's a beautiful presentation and um, it's a lovely something to drink that keeps you warm too. And over time you're, you're drinking this as it, as it cools down, is there a major flavor profile difference? Is it just, does it get sweeter? Does it, what's I, like I the actually effect find of the that the, I find the spices come out a little bit more once it cools down because I think you're not being necessarily overwhelmed by the warm alcohol that is evaporating. So I do feel like it does change after some time, but I'm, I'm not sure if that's because it's cooling down or just because it's all sort of sitting together for a little bit more time. So I do feel that some of the uh, flavors do change, but I'm not really sure uh, what's at the heart of that. It seems like these mulled wine recipes are things you used to see in the old, like Mr. Boston cocktail books. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always traditional drinks and mulled wine was one of those traditional things, but it, I, I don't think we hear much about them anymore. No, you don't see them in restaurants. You don't see them at yeah, bars. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Did like they, it's a you know, very old-fashioned-y kind of thing, like very old Europe. One of these things that when people reminisce about visiting Europe over the holidays that they, you know, they think about going to a German market and having a glass of mulled wine while they were, you know, looking through what to buy for Christmas presents and, you know, things like that. And I, what I, one of the things that I really liked in this article was they talked about some of those traditional variations, like a number of different countries have their own versions of these things. There's a Russian version, which has um, honey and, you know, some of these spices. There's a, a Canadian version that includes rye whiskey and maple syrup, which I can't wait to try because I love all those things. And I thought you, know, you were going to say bacon. No, no bacon. Oh, <laughs> bacon. oh <my> God, no. <laughs> Maybe. They're a little garnish. Bit. Bacon that's, makes everything better. Yeah, that's the garnish. <laughs> what else there did you go. find? I'm going to garnish it with bacon. There a- we go. Maple from- syrup, bacon. 
anything from Italy or Spain that you saw? I think those are the more traditional ones, honestly. Really? Yeah, I think that the Italian ones are very similar to what you see in France and what you see in Germany, kind of that, you know, central, central, not central Europe, but, you know, that Western European, you know, we're not talking about Scandinavia, we're not talking about Russia, we're not talking about those countries that have such bitterly cold winters. I mean, we do have winter time temperatures in the northern parts of Italy, which is where you would expect to have these drinks. But I think more in the southern and central parts of Italy, um, this is a little bit less of a tradition. It's more something that you would be seeing in France and Germany. So I want to just want quickly ask you, you have this on your stove. Are you somehow monitoring the temperature or you just make sure it doesn't boil? Yeah. You just look and it doesn't bubble. Yeah. You don't need to keep a, don't, don't put a temperature thing in there. So it starts (laughs) bubbling. It starts bubbling. You take it off. Turn it down. Take it off. Turn yeah. it down. Take it off. Okay. That's but what I like about the crock pot thing. It's like that doesn't, you know, you don't really have to monitor it. You just put it on low and it's perfect. I was, see, now I saw the microwave thing. I was thinking I can do that. It said microwave on high two and a half to three minutes and then just let it sit there you go. for 15 minutes. Yeah. So then you you pretty much have like a red wine infusion because you've heated up the wine to the temperature that you need it to be and you've added all of your other ingredients. And But how do you keep it warm if you've nuked it? Well, I guess after 15 minutes uh, out of the, uh, it said let it steep for 15 minutes. You're going to put back I would in the assume, microwave. <laughs> I would assume that's the temperature you, after 15 minutes. because No, it's, it's going to be cold. You, know? you think so? As someone who reheats their tea all day long. Really? Yes. Oh, after gonna, 15 minutes of sitting it. at room temperature. Yeah, that will have gotten cold after 15 minutes. I don't think I'll enjoy it if I'm like, if it's like a tea temperature. No, you'd want it a little bit warmer. Yeah? Yeah, I think so. I'm just so used to you know, normal style. Wine, temperature. Weird like that. Cellar temperature. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I mean, I think the better way to think about it is not to think about it as a glass of wine, but to think of it as a different type of beverage. You know, I I, kind of like this idea of thinking of it as a winter sangria. You would never consider putting a whole mess of ice cubes in your glass of red wine, right? But if you have a sangria, that's pretty much what you're doing. Right. So this is the flip side. Yeah. Well, you enlightened me today and hope some of the <laughs> listeners uh, learned something about it. Maybe a lot of our listeners are mulled wine fans. Maybe, maybe. And I uh, I really kind of want to go make this uh, Canadian version, which for our listeners is called a caribou. And it contains red wine, rye whiskey, maple syrup, and spices. So that might be something that you want to try in our cold New England winter if you happen to live here with us in New England and uh, we have all those things at the ready. And we don't know how long which is going to last. So we got some warm, some warm cocktail ideas for you. You're listening to the wonderful world of wine. And we are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. If you'd like more information about Kim, you can find her on VinitasWineWorks.com. If you'd like more information about myself, you can go to franklinlickers.com. And you can find us on where you're listening to your favorite podcasts. Uh, we're on SoundCloud and iTunes. Just search The Wonderful World of Wine. Next, we want to talk about an article that was in Wine Searcher. And it was talking about something in the wine world that I think we have to explain a little to our listeners. It's probably not a consumer thing as much as maybe a retailer or a restaurant thing. It's called wine allocations, Kim. And I have a lot to ask you about this, but why don't you explain an overview of what are wine allocations in the wine world? I think this is something that is very to the moment. 
right now uh, because of what we're seeing happening in the restaurant industry where folks, you know, if they're going out and doing fine dining, the, um, the number of people who are allowed in restaurants is so much smaller. Restaurants are really, really hurting right now. And what wine allocations have kind of always been is that they're for some of these wines that are either more difficult to get or made in smaller quantities or that are just super duper popular, there are allocations set for either who can buy the wines or the quantities of wines that can be available to any particular buyer or restaurant or store. Uh, but with the COVID crisis, we're sort of seeing that a lot of the avenues that these wine allocations would be sold through have completely dried up. So, you know, big fancy steakhouses that maybe got the bulk of a particular really expensive Cabernet that has a big following and is, you know, nearly impossible to get on a retail level. If those steakhouses aren't doing the kinds of business that they had been doing, um, now suddenly there is all this wine that has never been able to be available to a retail store or to a retail consumer. Suddenly there's a lot of this wine out there. So this in this whole situation with COVID has really changed what is available and how that wine is being distributed. So that's just what I've seen from the distribution and the restaurant end. Mark, I'm sure you have a different perspective of it from, from the retail end of it. But how this affects you, the consumer, is that there are a lot of wines now out there that used to only be available if you went to a restaurant and you couldn't buy a bottle of it in a store. But now there's a lot more of those kind of things that if you know where to look and you know how to look for them, they are out there now. Well, that was very well put, Kim. It, it's I think it's difficult for retailers because the restaurants are used to it. So it's a system they understand. If they mm -hmm. want a certain wine on their list, they know they're probably going to get it. This is their business as usual. You're right. Saying. Exactly. Yeah. This so, is how like, it has been operating for however long. It's the, the way of the world for wine. And in retail, I always think it's to me, it's almost like it's they it's their own private label. Because the consumer can't get it in a retail store. You have to get it in the restaurant. So right. I, I always go back and forth. First off, I always look into, is it legal? And a long time ago, I, I researched with in the state of Massachusetts, can a distributor who's selling wine to a restaurant not sell it to me if I say I want to buy it? And legally, they can't. But I think technically, they can never tell you, you have to buy something else to get it, that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, you know, our listeners probably don't, you know, care about all that, but there's a lot of things that are, are playing around. And I don't know if it's a good thing for a winery or a bad thing. What's, mm -hmm. your, what's your take on that? If you, you can only get a wine that they're only selling to high-end restaurants, not every restaurant, just high-end restaurants that are probably making three to four times profit on that bottle. Is that a good thing for the consumer? Good thing for the consumer or good thing for the winery? Well, both. The winery first, because I did say that first. But is it is it good for the winery's reputation? It's building up like a I market. Think, I think it's only good for the winery if the system works. And yeah. we've seen that the system can fall apart. Which <laughs> and it the is, system which it is now. has fallen apart. Yeah. yeah. So I think, yeah, um, I think it works when it works. But when the system is no longer in place for 
that to work, then no. And we've seen this year that there are, you know, a lot of these, you know, high end labels, very difficult to get some either because they're rare or others because, you know, there's just so much hype around these wines that they've always been so highly allocated that now they have nowhere to sell them and they're in a panic. So I think, you know, systems work when they work, but if something goes awry, then they're kind of in a bind now. So I think wineries have had to be very creative uh, when it comes to selling their inventories. And it's it's really different for, for everyone this year. So I don't think that 2021 is necessarily going to see the elimination of this problem, maybe 2022, but I think we, we will be dealing with this for this calendar year as well. And I think that the benefit to the consumer, you know, on the one hand, people read reviews about all of these hard, hard to get wines and if you are someone who wants to seek out these wines that are harder to find and you know you're paying extravagant prices for them in a restaurant if that's worth it to you if there's value for you in paying those prices for that bottle then i think the system is working for you but i think for a lot of other people if these are things that you've always wanted to try and have never been able to try that now that the system is readjusting a little bit because the restaurants don't necessarily need them, it could be a good opportunity to try things, buy things, get your hands on wines that haven't necessarily been available to anyone except in a restaurant environment. And I'll, I'll give you an example of what happened to me this year with this, Kim, is if you go to Foxborough Stadium to watch the Patriot, they sell a wine that has the Patriot's logo they make a Patriots Chardonnay, a Patriots Cabernet, a Patriots Pinot Noir. And for years, when the Patriots, unfortunately, usually this time of year, were in the playoffs in the Super Bowl, I would ask the distributor for that wine. And they would say it's exclusive. It's allocated to Robert Kraft at the stadium, in the clubhouse, and that's the only place you can get it. We, we don't sell to anybody else. This year, what happened? The stadium's closed. The double whammy. Right? Now they're <laughs> sitting on all of this Patriots wine, and I get it, and they lose. Right. But the point is, it's oh. not always oh. high, high end, <laughs> but it is this little specialty stuff. Now, yeah. so the average you know, wine consumer or Patriots fan, this was a great thing. I mean, they, they saw Patriots wine that for a price of a bottle, they were probably paying a price of a glass at the stadium. So that was a good thing. That's but, good. But <laughs> Too bad never, they didn't, they didn't now, make it this year. <laughs> once this is all over, you won't see that in stores again. So it almost right. makes it look like it's easy to get. And then now it's going to go away again. So I think that's the downside of allocations. Yeah. And because so, like you said before, Mark, so much of this system is kind of built into the restaurant model um, that they, you know, this is just part of the regular part of doing business, but it, it's not necessarily that way on the retail end. So you know, how much effort do you do you on the retailer side want to put into the developed the developing of building those relationships in order to get those wines? And on the other hand, you know, do the wineries and the distributors want to build new infrastructure to get these wines to retailers instead of to restaurateurs if it's not going to be needed in 12 months? 18 months. I think it's a very difficult situation for everyone involved because why do you want to build a new way of distributing these things if you're not going to need it in a year? Yeah. And we just wanted to let the listeners know that this 
wine allocation thing exists in the world and what it is and why you might be seeing some different things on retail shelves. Right. And uh, it's it's complicated at times. Did you dealt with it when you were in wine sales? Was it? Oh, yeah. From all ends. Yeah. So what I've noticed is I'll ask for a wine. They say, oh, no, I'll have to I have to send a message or an email to so and so to get approved. And he has to go through a whole chain of management to see if they can even release it to you. And I mean, did you go through all that as well when you were in sales? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's a lot of red tape. But for those consumers who are out there buying wine, and if you see these bottles that you've kind of always wanted to get your hands on and have always been told that they're not available for the retail customer, and you see them now, now is a good time to scoop them up because in 12 months, a year and a half um, that might not be available anymore. So go buy the wine. Thank you for listening to us today on The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone. You can find past episodes of our show on SoundCloud and iTunes, and you can find us all the time on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Please leave us your questions or comments. We would love to answer some of your questions on the show. Bye.